This episode is brought to you by Tenable. Tenable is the exposure management company. Approximately 43,000 organizations around the globe rely on Tenable to understand and reduce cyber risk. As the creator of Nessus, Tenable extended its expertise and vulnerabilities to deliver the world's first platform to see and secure any digital asset on any computing platform. Tenable customers include approximately 60% of the Fortune 500, approximately 40% of the Global 2000, and large government agencies. Learn more at Tenable.com. Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. This is a special live exit interview with Air Force CIO, Lauren Knossenberger. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Kate Macri, Deputy Editor at GovCIO Media and Research. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your evening with us and with Lauren to listen to this live podcast recording before she officially departs the Air Force tomorrow. Um, in her six years at the Air Force, Lauren has built a reputation of going directly to airmen, listening to their problems, and using that insight to drive IT innovation and digital transformation and provide real solutions to those problems. She's elevated the software factories and DevSecOps practices, which are the backbone of the Defense Department's software modernization strategy. She's pioneered a zero trust approach to cybersecurity, helping inform the Pentagon's own zero trust strategy. And she's consistently highlighted the importance of IT to the Air Force's ability to accomplish its mission. She's also a trailblazer for women in defense tech. She's known for celebrating and advocating for women in defense tech leadership. And just a few months ago, Lauren called out an especially poignant moment when the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, realized all of his top IT and cyber advisors are women, some of whom are here and we tonight. Have Ms. Wanda Jones Heath, right here. Yes, yes. So, to start off the conversation today, um, I wanted to ask about a fashion trend that you set at the Pentagon, which also seems to be a little bit of a, I guess, a a look into how you've changed the way the Air Force sees IT and transformed uh, like digital transformation for them. Can you tell me a little bit about that, what you did? So, first, before we, before we talk about my red leather jacket, um, I do want to invite you all this is, this is a fun podcast, and there's definitely a party happening right behind us. Yes. So I will, I will be, uh, I will take it as a, a positive thing, and it, on a, in addition to not being at all offended, if you get up at any point during the podcast to get more wine or cheese, um, and just we're, we're here to have fun, um, and, and to celebrate, and to, to just talk about um, really the incredible... Department of the Air Force and broader community and tribe um, that, it, that is here gathered. Um, so I'll start there. Um, but yes, the, the red leather jacket, um, I actually bought that jacket for Spark Tank. I think it was the second year of Spark Tank. And I would not say 
nobody that knows me from anywhere would say, oh yeah, she is a fashion trendsetter. It was never going to be in my cards. Um, but that jacket spoke to me. And I went over to Nordstrom and I tried on a bunch of stuff and I was like, okay, I got to have this red leather jacket. I've not bought anything like this. And I wore it for Spark Tank. But then I was, I was kind of an HQE. I was supposed to be kind of shaking things up. You know, we're doing Spark Tank. We got Mark Cuban and George Steinbrenner and airmen pitching people in Orlando. Um, I mean, it's the closest thing to a rock concert that we have, you know, in the Department of the Air Force. And it was just fantastic. And um, so I became the CIO, where I guess I'm supposed to have overnight kind of grown up a little bit, because now I'm the CIO. I've got an office in the E-ring. There's wood paneling around my office. I'm an adult now, right? Um, so I had to, to go take my, uh, my official headshot. And I had the red leather jacket. <laughs> and I wore that red leather jacket down to take my headshot. And I was chased down the hallway by a tech sergeant saying, ma'am, ma'am, uh, isn't there a garment bag in your office? Don't you have like another jacket that you can wear to take your headshot? Um, and, uh, and, and I said, uh, no, no, this is, this is what I'm wearing. Um, and, and I actually did think about it. I really did think about it um, because if you look at that picture, at least at the time, everyone is wearing black or blue. That is it. There was no yep. color. Now our chief scientist, Victoria Coleman, uh, Dr. Coleman is now wearing a red jacket um, in the picture. So there's a little bit of color, but at the time there was none. And I was just like, you know what, if I'm going to be a different kind of CIO, then I can look like a different kind of CIO. And so let's do this. Yeah. And, uh, and there we are. And, and I will tell you that that red leather jacket also helped me when I was hiring my last exec, because, um, if you all know shake, um, or the body man, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, well now Colonel, uh, Ken Carmichael, who's the J six up at uh, Cybercom, he was my exec. And one of the reasons he wanted to be my exec, and he was a heck of an exec is because he was like, okay, she's a different kind of leader. And he asked me, did you wear the red jacket on purpose? Or were you just like, oh, I was wearing that that day. I didn't know it was different. And, um, and actually at first I said, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be mysterious about that. But now you know the story. Yeah. So how did you take that attitude into your time as CIO over the last three years in terms of, you know, like I'm going to be a different kind of CIO. I'm not afraid to like break some cultural norms in the Pentagon. Well, I mean, I, I will be very honest. There are times to be a different kind of CIO and shake things up. And there are times that you don't want to be, you know, that, that you actually have to kind of pick your battles. Right. And, um, and so if I look at, um, kind of what I pictured like day one, I'm going to go be CIO. What do I want to, what do I want to get done? A lot of the things that I wanted to get done were the things that I got to do with the innovation community. Um, kind of those three years. It's like, all right, we can write code and we can deploy it and we can solve a problem right now. And we can do this so easily except for all of these problems down the stack. And so we had solved a bunch of really interesting challenges actually with a lot of the people in this room. I'm looking around that I'm seeing people that were there like solving a lot of these problems from day one. And I was just thinking, you know what? I would love to be the chief information officer. Well, I don't know if I ever said that, but um, <laughs> if, if I am going to be insane enough to agree to be the chief information officer, the things that I want to focus on are solving those things down the stack so that when people are trying to innovate, when people are trying to deploy capabilities, that we're, we're not solving it each and every time, that we can solve it once and we can solve it for everybody. And that is incredibly difficult to do at scale. And I think that we've made some incredible progress. We have not solved 
all of the problems. I, I saw a um, saw a news headline recently that said that you know that I said something like, "Oh yeah, it's all in the rearview mirror, baby." And I was just like, "Well, if it's that scene from Jurassic Park where like you're looking in the rearview mirror and the and the T Rex is like breathing on you, then then yeah, maybe maybe a few things are in our rearview mirror, but we have a lot more to do. But as far as moving a lot more things to cloud, as far as um, really institutionalizing the, the CI/CD pipeline, make it easier to bring things to production, just having a mentality of being able to deliver capability, um, occasionally being able to accredit things more quickly. We, I mean, the, the laughter is appropriate because it is, and that's my deputy, ladies and gentlemen. Winston yeah. <laughs> Beauchamp right here. Um, it's appropriate because we can do things really, really well. And actually, we've got Wanya Ford from Arlo. We've got Rick Tassavanen from Dark Wolf. These guys have been part of that journey, making accreditation really, really fast. But we haven't been able to do it all the time. You know, we even had undersecretary memos saying, use fast track, use continuous ATL. We don't do it all the time yet. And a lot of that came down to let's get our infrastructure more consistent. And so we have but we haven't completely cracked that nut. So coming into the job, I was thinking, let's solve all of these problems downstream. Let's simplify. Let's become more secure. Let's deliver more capability through modernizing. But uh, but coming in the door, I realized, okay, all right, first, how the heck have we funded IT this way for the last 10 years? Where's the money, guys? It's like, what is going on? What do you mean we start the year this negative? Um, and, and, oh, where's the team? Um, so... Step one, build a team. We got a heck of a team. And some of them are here tonight. We got Winston Beauchamp, my deputy. We have Venus Goodwine, director of enterprise IT. Wanda Jones Heath was the first CISO that I got to work with. She's now the principal cyber advisor. Um, we actually have some former team members here tonight. Um, raise your hand if you work for the SAF CIO organization at some point. I see several people. Still, still there, um, and um, you know, and, and also Stuart Wagner um, is still with with us. Or oh, maybe this is your oh, this is your first day working with the vice chief. Um, so, just really incredible team built. But coming in the door, we we the bench had been pretty. It had been pretty depleted. Yeah. So we had to build the bench. We had to build the budget picture. We had to build the plan. And I think kind of looking back, what I feel the best about are building this team and not just our CIO team, but building the, the cross-pollination with the innovation community, with the PEO, with the lead command. We have amazing people that are trying to do good stuff for our warfighter all over our organization. And they like working together and they believe in the plan and they have buy-in in the plan. They help create the plan. And so at this point we're executing out. And I also feel pretty good about um, the plus ups that we have now on the budget side. Um, I don't know if we can even talk about it yet. Can we talk about it yet? All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Venus is, and I know Venus is the one that knows, but it's nice. It's nice. When I look at fiscal year 24, we are in a solid place. Fiscal year 23 is so much better than 22. Um, and so all of those things, so it's like, yes, we're going to change the world. We're going to transform this place. Okay, first we're going to build a team and get some money. Um, so, you know, a little bit of adjustment of expectations uh, yeah. there, there in the beginning. Yeah. So when you first started in the office, what were, say, the top three things that you really wanted to accomplish? And how do you feel about that now? 
Oh, wow. Um, so pretty soon after jumping into the job, um, I put out kind of like a four tenants and I'm going to see if I can even remember them now. It was, it was ruthlessly attack manual process, um, build a rock solid digital foundation for the department of the Air Force. Uh, user experience for warfighter. User experience for warfighter effect. And then, uh, creating the trade space. Cybersecurity that works. That was that was the foundation for the whole thing, and then and yeah, the fiscal year twenty four palm that works. We pulled that off, and that was kind of in the trade space column. It was about how do we how do we divest some some legacy things that we really don't need anymore and use that to invest in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were kind of the the tenants. Um, I definitely wanted to make sure that we became a, a cloud first organization and that that we could really really. Um, empower our our software community but again like and i think we've made some good progress there but again i then had to kind of be like okay all right while i'm assessing first things first team um um and and getting this plan in motion so that we can really do this yeah so when you talk about divesting the legacy systems i mean we all know you guys have a lot of those what were what were some of the big challenges that you were encountering when trying to tackle that issue so i mean we're we're really big we're really good at uh funding things independently um, we're occasionally good at, you know, kind of, I, I won't say hiding money, but, you know, protecting the budget line items. Um, and so we actually spent a good amount of time. Um, we, even, we even engaged with Palantir. I think they're here tonight. We're sunny. All right. We even engaged with Palantir to help us um, grab data from across our enterprise and, and analyze and kind of dive into like, oh man, look at all those $249,000 credit card purchases. Isn't our limit 250000 before you have to report? How interesting. Um, you know, so, so kind of jumping into to all of those things um, was, was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so when we're talking about uh, challenges that you faced. Obviously, building the team, figuring out the budget were some big ones. Once you got that kind of in a stable place where you could start, you know, actually doing the work, what were some of the big challenges that you faced to uh, meeting all of those tenants that you were talking about? Well, I mean, this is the Department of Defense, so we're full of challenges, you know. Um, I think it, it, really when it comes down to it, 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 I think having the team and the budget, you know, really in place, you, you just have to have a plan that works. And so we've been working on um, putting out, like, hey, these are the core capabilities that we need to deliver, um, the, the roadmap um, to getting after those capabilities. You've seen the the Zero Trust Roadmap, the ICAM Roadmap, um, I think we'll have an SD-WAN Roadmap here soon, the Summer of Data Roadmap. Um, one of the challenges, but also the opportunities, is as you lay out those roadmaps, getting all the people that have buy-in into those roadmaps, have funding, have um, intellectual capital, have have uh, brute force and other types of manpower to throw at that, that roadmap, getting people all talking together and delivering and, and kind of rowing in the, in the same direction. Um, definitely a, a, a challenge and an opportunity. Um, I think also um, 
helping everyone to understand that we've got limited resources. We're all in this together. We do need to pool resources. We do need to shut things down. Um, but on the flip side of that, we have to deliver capability before we can shut things down. Right. And I think that historically in the Department of Defense, we've had kind of like a divest to invest type strategy. And, you know, and sometimes we, we kind of laugh. It's like we've been divesting for like 20 years. Um, so so how about we we invest and then we'll, we'll divest some more. Um, so I think we've had some interesting kind of cultural discussions, too, um, over the past couple of years. And, and one, I think, major win is that most rooms that we walk into, um, there's very little talk about like, hey, we'll just make IT the bill payer. Whereas if you go back a few years, IT was always the bill payer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do think that people, the number one thing that people will show up to the table with is I need more digital infrastructure. I need my software to be awesome. Um, I like the progress that we've made. I want to see more. And so it's funny that if I go back two years or more, most rooms that I walked into, I walked into knowing that I was going to have to educate most of the room on why we needed a rock-solid digital foundation to compete with a near-peer adversary in the future. And over time, I had to sell it less and less because um, I remember we, uh, so pretty early on um, in my tenure, um, I had a guy named Batman best call sign. Um, Andrew DiPolito, who's the A6 out in, in USAFE, he called me up and he was like, hey, we'd really like to have you come out and, and check out what's going on in our theater. And we had General Harrigian out there as the, the four-star. And, and General Harrigian, just warfighter to warfighter, he, you know, he didn't care how we did it. He just wanted us to, to deliver for his airmen. And I remember going out there and kind of investigating a lot of the problems that they were having. And, and we jumped in and we were able to point to several infrastructure things that really needed to get done and get the four-star really interested in funding IT in theater. And all of a sudden, we were doing just incredible things for the mission. And this four-star, who was so well-respected, was all of a sudden tooting our horn and going into other Air Force meetings with our secretary and our chief and other MAGCOM commanders and saying, hey, I made these investments, and this is what happened and this was, by the way, about a year before all of the stuff with Ukraine went down. And so all of a sudden, we've got all of this WASTA. You know, we've got four stars saying this is really important. And, and they're speaking in warfighting terms. And they're talking about fighting with allies and bringing together warfighting data that's never been, been merged. And so I think that um, that was another previous challenge that people kind of sometimes didn't know what the community was talking about. You know, because we had a lot of smart people um, that really know technology. But all of a sudden, it's it's being talked about in warfighting terms. We've got fighter pilots just fighting for us. Mm -hmm. And that was exciting. And then it happened again in PACAF. And, um, and all of a sudden, the geeks are at the table. The geeks are there. And the four stars and fighter pilots are like, all right, make sure all the geeks are here because we need to use technology to help solve this problem. And we don't have enough time to, to waste. Yeah, I think that's something that you're really known for in the Air Force community is you you go out and you you talk to the end user basically and are finding finding out what they're struggling with, what they need help with, what what you can give to them. Uh, what what kind of impact has that had 
now that you're leaving in terms of like how the Air Force sees IT now, especially from like a warfighter perspective? Well, I think that, um, I think that we've, I think that our CIOs have always tried to, to chat with the airmen. I think I've done it. I think I've done it a lot because it, it matters to me because I, you know, I came from that innovation community where it's like, our best idea wins, like everybody just kind of get into the melee and let's go. And so when I go out and speak to airmen, I, I, I tend to kind of give two uh, kind of stage setting things. I'll say, one, you're probably not going to surprise me. And two, you will not hurt my feelings. So now let's have a really, really honest discussion. What is really in your way? And, um, and I'll also be really honest about like, if something is broken, I'll be like, yeah, it's really, really broken. This is what we're trying to do to get after it. Or this is what we're focused on now. And then we're going to get after that thing. And so just being really honest and, and setting expectations. But I think that they care too, that they see conversations with me. They see conversations with Winston and Venus and with other members of our team. And they see the data, our user experience data. I got to give Colt Whittle a lot of uh, credit for that. And they see us chipping away at it. And so um, we've actually seen our user experience data improve by 25 points over the last two years, which for an enterprise of our size, that's just ridiculous. And it was really, really bad. So that's almost like a 100% improvement. Um, so, um, and, and it's really about, it's collecting the data. And, it, it, and I'm not scalable. I can't talk to every airman and guardian. But our surveys go out and we could see you know, we, we always ask, like, what's your experience today for the score, but also what's the main driver? And for a long time, the main driver was like, oh, man, like, it takes forever for my email to load. Okay, that gives us a target. Um, and so as we saw those targets, we went after them. And then we saw those targets go away, which is really good reinforcing feedback. And then we would see new targets. And then you kind of look at, at how are the users feeling and what is the actual data um, and we were actually able to look at um, certain data hitting up against some architectural choices that don't that aren't really Air Force decisions; they're DoD decisions. And so now DoD is looking at that data and saying, "Oh, okay, we see how this correlates. Maybe we can try some different types of choices that will help everyone's user experience." And um, and it has been really exciting to have like depth depth call us into a meeting and be like, all right, Air Force, you know, tell us about user experience and how you're using this data to make things better. And how have you, have you driven this data? Um, so that's been exciting. CAPE has been excited about it, which means that funding follows. And I think that we've done an incredible amount of things to improve our user experience with very little money because we can follow the data and we can spend that next dollar on something smart. But I think we have a lot more to come. So you mentioned your innovation background being a, a big driver in how, how you approach these problems and how you've approached your time as CIO. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your time at the Air Force before you became CIO? Because you've been at the Air Force six years now. Um, and how your previous positions and your, your specific innovation experience that that got you into that mindset to, to really get stuff done as CIO? Sure. So I think that, I think some of it is definitely how I'm wired. Like I just, I really enjoy solving problems. And if you go back really early in my career, so I was a, you know, shiny 17 year old, um, as a gifted 
and talented intern up at the NSA. And um, like, I could have gone and made some websites or something probably, because um, I guess it was like the late 90s and you know, websites were all the rage. Um, and I actually did code in HTML before people just didn't have to code in HTML anymore. Um, and, uh, but I chose actually a really gnarly problem. You know, it's just like, Hey, how do we reverse engineer integrated circuits? It's like, we've got this circuit, but like, what, what does it do? And so actually as a teenager was working with some pretty crazy minds at NSA, like how, how do we do this? And, and came up with kind of a, an approach to, to go after this and, and wrote some code. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And I was just like, oh man, this is, this is kind of awesome. So I definitely found myself being drawn to anything that involves solutioning, anything that involves solving a problem that hadn't been solved before. Um, and as I kind of went on in my career, um, sometimes through serendipity and sometimes probably on purpose, I kept getting pulled into the thing that needed to be fixed. Um, and, uh, one time, I don't know, some of you guys have known me for a long time, but I was at, uh, I was at CACI, um, relatively early in my career. And one day this old retired case officer is kind of like, I, I tell the story. He was kind of wandering the hall one day looking for someone young enough and cheap enough to, uh, you know, fit like the labor rate for some contract where they just, you know, had no idea what it was. And, um, so you know, it was like, Hey kid, do you want to try this thing? I have no idea what it is. And so, um, much like I accidentally joined the air force, I accidentally showed up at CIA one day. Um, and I, and I was talking to, um, a, a GS 15 with an international program that was just really in trouble. And it's definitely still a kid at the time, but I was just like, all right, this is how I would approach this problem. Um, Hey, are you in like, let's, let's try this. And, um, and so um, kind of jumped in, uh, helped launch actually the first DevSecOps program uh, for the CIA with another defense prime and kind of got the operations in order. And, and we just, we just scaled and we just did some really, really cool things um, for our national security apparatus, as well as um, our liaison partners around the, the world. Um, and then I kind of got known as the person that could fix broken programs. And I got pulled into another program that was in in not great shape. Um, so kind of went back and kind of did the corporate side for a little while. And there actually, I got to focus more on mentoring. And, um, uh, I think at one point I had to hire like, I don't know, a hundred people a month, you know? So it was like a lot of, a lot of hiring, a lot of mentoring, a lot of growing people. Um, and then went to grad school um, and while I was in grad school, so I went to grad school in Philly. I was at Wharton. I was with a bunch of investment bankers. I actually grew up in DC. So, you know, I growing up in DC, like I know kind of the government sector, you know, like you, your neighbors are NASA and NSA and, you know, you got, got Hill people. Um, but all of a sudden I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs and investment bankers and, and all of these folks and our dinner conversations were like, Oh, what are you investing in right now? You know, like how much money did you make or how much money did you lose last week? Um, and it was really interesting. And I got kind of pulled into the entrepreneurial and investment world and started investing with next gen angels, which later was acquired by Brown advisory, um, with, uh, a Wharton investing group. I started a couple of companies and I found myself, even while I was working with my own company, I found myself being drawn into helping other companies to grow and to see where their niche was and where could they enter the market or maybe they shouldn't enter the market yet. 
I remember one company specifically, I said, don't enter the federal market. You need to go be the bell of the ball in your home market. Um, because it was a, it was a, a small town area. Um, and, uh, and by the way, I, so I, I also am very curious about people and I meet people everywhere. This particular entrepreneur, I met him at the bar at Rossica. Um, and, uh, and actually I've got a, I've got a, um, high school, I've got a high school classmate here somewhere. Where is he? Where's LB? Did he, he's probably getting wine in the back because that's how we, how we roll. But, um, I was meeting another high school classmate, just catching up at the bar at Rossica and started chatting with this guy who was thinking about starting a business. And I just gave him some advice. And, and actually we caught up a couple weeks ago and he said, that was, a, that was just great advice. I have become the bell of the ball in Iowa. My, my Senator and my Congressman, they called me to the Hill so that I can testify about everything in this space. And by the way, we entered the federal market about six months ago and we are crushing it. And, you know, so I just, I just found myself being drawn to helping founders and to solving problems. And, um, and I think that if you, if you love solving problems and you love helping people, that the innovation community, the small business community, um, or a problem-rich environment like the Department of Defense um, are just an incredible place to be. And, and there actually is a lot of entrepreneurship in the DOD. And I know, I know, okay, we get, yeah, it's true. It's true. We can, we can, we can applaud the, the entrepreneurs. And we, we do, by the way, have Ms. Molly Kane, the original, the original, um, rabble rouser up here. Um, and, uh, the IRS has gotten her to, you know, to, yeah, but you're doing, you're like allowing, you're working on paying in Bitcoin now. Like we can pay, I can pay my taxes in Bitcoin, you know, thanks to Molly over here. Um, I know we have Joey Aurora, one of the original AFWorks rabble rousers. There are a lot of people trying to do awesome things and there's a lot of bureaucratic inertia that can just stifle people and have people just say, Hey, I'm out of here. Like, this is too hard. We make too many easy things hard, but I do think that there's enough momentum and enough people that really, really believe it and are so passionate, um, that, um, it's been an incredible community. And, um, I, I think that, that we need that to continue, but we also need to continue to, to kill those roadblocks where we can. Yeah, absolutely. There's quite a party going on. I know. Yeah. All right. Um, So now on your last night before your last day at the Air Force, how are you feeling about the legacy that you've left and where the Air Force can go next in terms of modernizing IT and cybersecurity? So I feel really good because I look around the room and the the team is my legacy. Um, And the plan is my legacy. And the captains and majors that were kind of rabble rousers of the innovation community that I got to work with, they're going to be the ones running this place after not too long. Um, And so if I've helped a couple of people to just like keep at it and and go through the wall one more time, I feel really good about that. 
Um, I think we've gotten some amazing things done, and I'm, I'm even more excited to see what this team does actually after I run out the door. Because, you know, the, the 24 budget picture is solid. The plan is solid. I think that um, I think we have some people that are going to take this organization in a really cool direction. And I'm excited to see it happen. Um, I'm going to be eating the popcorn. I'm going to be rooting while I watch the home game. Um, and I'm always going to be a friend if people want to reach out. So before we take some audience questions, I did want to ask, like pivot a little bit, uh, what advice do you have for women who are interested in pursuing similar careers to yours or uh, technology careers in government generally or defense tech careers? What, like, what can they learn from you? So I, I will share just a little bit of philosophy. Um, so... Um, I, I, I was pretty, pretty type A personality kind of growing up. Um, very, very competitive, um, very straight A student, played every sport, you know, like definitely, uh, definitely a little type A. Um, and of course I had a plan, you know, coming out of undergrad, I was going to go work for a company for five years. I was going to go to grad school. I had kind of like a, you know, a, a path mapped out. A couple of people in the audience are very confused at this level of planning that happens, you know, around undergrad. Um, I got into my career and I was like, oh man, like this is actually going really well. So I kind of went off plan. And at some point I decided that going off plan is the right plan. Um, and really just philosophically, I kind of see life as a series of doors that you can decide to go through the door or not. Um, and there are some doors that I've not gone through. I have no idea what would have happened if I'd gone through those doors. Um, but I think I went through the right doors and there are ways that you can create more doors. And a lot of times that happens, you know, through just spending time with your tribe, like finding the people that, you know, that you're excited to spend your time with and supporting them, um, and learning from them and, um, and, and being present. And so, I think that you can create a lot of opportunities doing that. And so, um, so I would, I would say, you know, maybe don't be so rigid in your thought of who you are and what you can be because you'll probably limit that imagination. Um, you know, it's much better to be in the moment and grab it. Now, when that door opens, you better be ready. You better say the right thing. You better be ready to make a decision. And that comes down to knowing yourself, being prepared, knowing what your personal elevator pitch is, um, and delivering it, not like an elevator pitch, but just with passion. Um, I will say too, that, um, I have never had a job that I didn't love. And it's probably not because I had all amazing jobs ever but I always picked something because by the way, I, I will never know what I want to be when I grow up. I especially don't know what I want to, what I want to be now. Um, but I've always picked something and whatever I picked, I just did the best that I could at it. And I think that when you pick something and you're doing the best that you can at it, you try to bring up the people around you. And one thing that took me a little while to figure out, because you don't think about this when you're 23, but as you get more senior in an organization, you realize how important it is to work horizontally. You know that you have to take care of your employees. You know that you have to talk to your boss. But the horizontal is the hard part people often forget. And, and I tell this to airmen all the time. If you can solve that problem for you, that's awesome. If you can find the other people that have the same problem as you, 
and you guys can all solve it together, then you just solved an enterprise problem, even though you just solved it for you. And by the way, you can probably make your boss look really, really good, you know, get a, get a nice review and drum up some money when to solve the problem, when you're able to show that this is, this is an enterprise capability. And, and that's true for anything like any corporation, any DOD, any government organization, there's always someone like you in another department that has that problem. Um, and, and I think that people appreciate, um, having colleagues that show up and want to know like, Hey, how can I help you? Um, that's another piece of advice I would give people is if you always start with, how can I help? How can I be helpful? And you don't expect anything in return. Honestly, don't respect anything in return. Um, you get to understand people's problems. You, you become more valuable because you really are there for the right reason. But over time, people want to know how they can help you and they want to, um, be part of what you're doing. And I think that that's something that very naturally kind of happens. Um, the other thing that I'll share too is early in my career, I thought I was terrible at networking because I hated it. Um, it's because I started out networking in like kind of a weird New York style networking thing, um, where people, you know, are just want to know like, well, what company do you work with and how can I like size you up in two seconds so that if I, you know, I can decide if I want to talk to you, I hate that type of networking. I don't do it. I don't like it skip that type of network. If you're in that room, go to a different room. The kind of networking that I like is the kind of networking where I don't know that I'm networking. I'm just talking to people. I just want to know what's exciting. What problems are you working? Like, what are your biggest challenges? Where can I help you? And that's where you find your tribe. And that's where you find people that are excited about the same things that you are. And I think if you surround yourself by those people, everybody gets richer. Um, and actually it's pretty cool that a lot of the folks, I think that I would definitely call part of the tribe or are, are, are here tonight rabble rousing with us. So as a, as a woman in a leadership position in DOD, uh, I know you've said before, you know, sometimes you've been the only woman in the room and I'm sure that can be like a little intimidating for younger women who are interested in pursuing similar kinds of careers. So what would you say to women who are, you know, maybe interested, but maybe a little scared and like not really sure what kind of impact they can have or what the right path to take is? So, um, this, this phrase has become negative recently, but I'm still going to use it. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> can I still say that? <laughs> um, but I mean it like there is no point in walking into a room, not being confident. Um, unless you're the type of person where psychologically you need to feel like I'm backed into a corner. Like if you're that type of person, then like, okay, walk in totally weak and like rise. Um, I like to feel like I'm in a room with confidence and anything that does not support that confident picture. So, okay, I'm going to ignore you right now. Ignoring you because right now I am confident. I have literally, have you seen that episode of Grey's Anatomy where they do the super, the Superman pose? Um, so it's a great episode. Um, and it's backed by, backed by science. Apparently I'm, I'm going to do this. You guys can laugh at me. Okay. Apparently if you take a superhero pose, you know, do something like this or something like this, you know, you, um, I love that the camera was a little late for that. That, that was good. That was good. Um, it makes you feel, it makes you feel more confident. 
And you can walk into that room. I have had times where I needed to go to the ladies' room and do the superhero pose. Um, by the time I came into this job, I think I, I, felt, I felt pretty good. But there have been times. Um, so walk into the room prepared and confident. And if you don't have the confidence, go find it. Because if you walk in weak, you've lost. But you don't want to walk into the room with a chip on your shoulder either. Okay? Know that you belong at the table, you belong in the room, you've been invited into the room, or you have found a way to push yourself into the room. However it happened, you're in the room. And so own it and be confident. Now, I think I had it a little bit easier than a lot of people because I had a little brother. And um, I kind of joked at my, uh, my retirement ceremony uh, a week or two ago that my little brother set me up really, really well to be in a, in a room full of uh, fighter pilots. Um, I mean, we, we grew up turning the living room into the WWF. I was, you know, I was surrounded by guys growing up. Um, you know, I, if anything, if I'm in a room of all guys, I kind of want to take care of them a little bit. You know, be like, maybe you should eat something that contains chlorophyll like once a week. Um, you know, um, maybe, maybe you need to get some sleep tonight. One night of maybe not drinking quite as much would be good. Um, you know, it's like, I, I want to kind of take care of the room. So I actually can walk into a room full of guys and I, I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. Um, I, that's kind of how I grew up, but I love having more and more sisters in the room. And I think it's wonderful. And I think that, um, I, I love the way Warren Buffett put this a few years ago. He was just, someone was like, how does it feel to be the world's greatest investor? And he said something along the lines of, well, I only had to, you know, I only had to compete with like half the people, um, you know, <laughs> meaning like, I mean, if women had shown up as investors sooner, you know, maybe I wouldn't be the, you know, the, the greatest investor. And, you know, in, in our military and our cyber community, we need everybody in the fight. And so, I love that we have more and more women, more and more minorities, more and more of anybody who wasn't in the room before, um, more and more people that have, had never served in the Department of Defense that are in the room and they want to contribute to the mission and they want to be part of this because this is a pretty cool party that, you know, that we have going on. Um, all right. I think I'm, I, th I think I, I think I tapped out the advice there. All right. Hopefully there's one nugget, one yeah. nugget. So I want to open it up to some audience questions. All right. So, uh, Lauren, you came in uh, increasing the creativity and innovation in the Air Force. How can we accelerate that and make it even faster? Because China is not waiting around for us. And I believe, maybe a lot of people believe, that our creativity and innovation is our competitive advantage as a country. So... I don't think that I can take credit for creating more innovation. I think that we've had just incredibly innovative people trying to solve amazing problems without often having the tools to do their jobs. Um, and so I think if we really want to go even faster, we give people the tools they need to do their jobs. That's, that's step one. And I think that we've made a lot of progress in that area. Um, step two, um, we have to, we have to solve the cybersecurity accreditation problems at scale every single time. Um, we have proven that we can do it, but we have to make it not just certain authorizing officials understand how to use it. Certain parts of the department of defense know how to use it. Um, we need everyone to be, to be using those methods and we know that they're inherently more secure. We've proven it time and time again. Um, I think that we also, um, need to, we, we do need to ruthlessly govern 
And so oftentimes we start with let's ruthlessly govern and let's stop you know, kind of a shadow IT, the innovation, there, there has to be kind of a give and take. You don't want to stop innovation, but you do want people to understand what's happening in the enterprise. You want them to have the tools they need to do their jobs. You want them to know that there are processes. You want them to know what's coming and you want them to solve the next problem that has not been solved. You don't want them to have to solve something that's been solved a gazillion times that we could have just purchased software to do. And we still do have those things because in a large enterprise where people consume information in so many different ways, it's really hard sometimes to even know what problems have already been solved until you are in it every single day. And I think we've made some good headway. Um, I actually am pretty excited about ITAS wave one kind of getting into production because it solves some of those really boring problems like how do I go to one IT store and know what software is already available to me and easily download it? It seems like a really simple thing, but we don't do it in one place. And, and you know, because of procurement delays, it, it's taken a good while. So some of those really boring things, having one IT service management platform, super boring, but it takes away, you know, another hundred paper cuts from people that are trying to do stuff. So I do think that that those boring things are some of the things that we have to do. Um, consistent cloud-based production infrastructure. That's the other one. And we are working through with, um, with DOD, um, to try to get through some of the data sovereignty issues, some of the CDS issues. Um, those are the biggest thing and secret rel. Those are kind of the biggest three things that we've pushed with DOD CIO that if we can solve those problems, then we can deliver code at the speed that we need to all over the world. We can truly deliver things with globally distributed architecture that actually work for the cloud and the edge. Um, and we'll probably, as a result, have fewer things sprung up to solve one problem here and there. Thanks for the question. Hi. Um, in your six years recently with the Air Force, you've seen the first new service stood up in almost 70 years. Go Space um, Force. Yeah. Can you speak to that experience, what that was like? And speaking of new services, any thoughts on rumblings about a new cyber service in addition to? Are the you the forces? media plant? I am not. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, if I say anything bad, then they can fire me. <laughs> so um, I will say that you know, so Space Force was part of our DNA in the Air Force. And so I think it was, it was there were a lot of conversations uh, going into, should we have a Space Force? Because it's like, well, we have a major command that's focused on this. And there, and there was some, some hot debate. Um, I think it's wonderful that we have a Space Force and that we are focused on the fact that we have adversaries who have weaponized space and that we need to really be focused. And, um, I, I would imagine that more and more of our future fight will need to be focused on space. Um, and so I think we made the right decision. If we look at a cyber force, you can look at it one of two ways. One, if I have a cyber force, it means that I really care about cyber, that I'm really investing in cyber. I will, I really want to ramp up that capability. But General Kennedy recently made a comment that I really uh, agree with. And that is, how do you separate out something that is integrated into every single thing that we do? Um, I think that as much as I would love to have a cyber force for 
for the message that it sends and for the investment that it shows that splitting out that capability, um, is the, is the wrong direction. Um, you know, I, I've been proven wrong before. Um, but I think that, um, I do think that it, it would be pretty, pretty murky to pull out that force. And I think also we have enough, um, I mean, we're trying to make sure that we have solid cyber forces to defend our weapon systems, to um, provide the capabilities that we need. Pulling more from that, I think, within any of the services would, would probably be really, really challenging. Um, and if we were to try to pursue something like that, there would have to be like a national level investment in um, really building up cyber skills and, and kind of bolstering, bolstering that apparatus. Um, you guys can tell me later how well I did on that. <laughs> you also have, you know, you have Wanda Jones Heath here. You can ask her offline, you know, her thoughts. She should dodge it though. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. Uh, I wanted Hi. to ask a quick question around what are the cultural elements that you see that led to meaningful change within the Air Force that other DOD services can replicate? I think that all of the all of the services have their pockets of really beautiful culture, um, and and I love that that um, Joey, who came out of AFWorks, is is asking this question. I mean, he's been in the middle of a lot of really great programs um, and, and initiatives, but I think that you know you you hear, um, hey, self forming teams. People, you hear all the buzzwords, all, all the buzzwords. The buzzwords, when you make them happen, actually work pretty consistently. You know, start start small, um, fail forward. I almost get annoyed when I hear these things because we say them and we very rarely do them. But the teams that can, the teams that actually do do kind of organize around a problem. Um, and I guess, I guess if we look at kind of success in the Air Force, we have a, a problem that is enticing enough that there is senior leader attention, but senior leaders don't necessarily have to solve, know how to solve it because it's going to involve some sort of technology. And we've got fighter pilots that are like, hey, I haven't, I haven't touched a computer in a little while. So let me find some kids that are really smart and throw them at this problem. When we then empower the right people to solve the problem and let them have it, and then let them start, resource them, find a champion to kind of back them, um, and then start to pull them into the bureaucracy just a little bit to give them top cover. Beautiful things happen. That's kind of the process that I see for things like Kessel Run, for Platform One. Um, I, I think that as much as we can empower those leaders, have kind of best, best idea wins. Um, I think that, you know, just recognizing that higher rank does not mean that, um, that you have the best idea. Um, in fact, the higher the rank you are, the more you should make sure that you don't say anything before your team talks first. Um, and, and really just letting people be creative. And so I think when we adopt that mentality, um, when we create, I mean, psychological safety, we love to talk about psychological safety now. I'm glad that we do because we didn't used to. Um, but when you create a situation where people do know that they can throw out a crazy idea and if you laugh, you're laughing with them, um, or maybe you're saying, actually, that's, that's a heck of an idea. 
Um, those are the things that really work. And giving people the space to, to, to be creative, to learn. Um, we've had some pretty incredible things happen. Um, like we had, I think it was a major up at the MIT Accelerator who is just taking a class on neural networks in our digital university platform. He's working with a bunch of 50-pound brains up at MIT, PhDs in AI. And this kid took a class, and he was able to fix a problem with a neural network. And, and people had, like these, these PhDs at MIT, had, had, it had completely eluded them for weeks. You know, so we have really, really smart people. Um, I remember chatting with um, Pivotal Labs, too, at one point um, in the early days of Kessel Run. And um, I think we have VMware here tonight. Um, and I remember the guys uh, from, from Pivotal, now, now VMware, saying, you know, I would pick the Air Force guys all day long because there's a grit and there's a passion and there's a desire to solve problems and there's a tenacity. Um, and so I think that we have a lot of those things built into our culture. And then there's a little bit of, you know, at that time paired programming, you know, where it's like, Hey, like it, it's safe. I can, I can make mistakes. I, I have a, a battle buddy who's going to mentor me. Um, and I think that actually we have a lot more room for that uh, to go as we grow through our enterprise too, paired, paired many things. I want to see some paired networking actually, um, coming up here in the near future. That might actually happen. Uh, Hi, good evening, Lauren. Uh, great to see you. Thank you so much for your outstanding leadership. Well, hello. Well, hello. It's good to see you again. Um, a lot of great words that you've shared with us and a lot of mentoring that everyone's getting out of here. Um, with every changeover in uh, senior leadership comes a, a handoff. I'm kind of curious as to what words you would offer or thoughts you would pass to your successor, which you would like to see continued, or maybe some of the areas that would concern you should they change to the extent that uh, you'd like to share with the audience. Absolutely. So what I would, what I would say to my successor is you have a heck of a team. They're all trying really, really hard to push this very heavy rock up a very, very steep hill. Um, we've got the right plan in place. We've got the right resource picture in place. Um, take a moment and make sure that you can, you know, push in and just really get these things executed well. Um, I, I do think that we're at a point where, where we can, what we really have to do is execute the plan that we're on and get it done. Um, I think that there will be a couple of things. You know, any new person should come in and have some new initiatives. Um, I definitely, I definitely had to, you know, make a few mistakes in the way that I prioritized in my tenure. Um, I would tell the new person, like really, really ruthlessly prioritize, you know, pick like one thing, um, work the plan, pick one thing, do that one thing really, really well. Um, because in this size enterprise, um, you know, we do need to, we do need to deliver on those things in progress and, just the more that we kind of shake things, I think at this moment, the more it will kind of confuse people because they're excited about the momentum. Um, so I think that, I think that that would be my, my advice to just execute the heck out of the plan and trust the team. That's probably, that's probably, you know, kind of not as exciting as, as it could be. So. Hey, Lauren, how Hi. you doing? Um, I got two softball questions for you. Oh, okay. Got the bat. I've got the bat ready. All right, good. Uh, the first is GHC2 is obviously one of the highest priorities in the Department of Defense. Softball. Definite softball there. What's, what's the role of CIO in GHC2? 
Second question. Part two. Part two. Yeah. Um, throughout your career in the Air Force, you've interacted with, worked with, the needed to leverage acquisitions within the Air Force. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Wow. <laughs> um, okay. So within the time that we have allowed here, I'll, I'll try to hit these, these briefly. So CIO's role in JADC2. Um, so a lot of JADC2 is how are we going to fight in the future? And we in the CIO lane, we're not going to tell people how to fight in the future. You know, we're, we're not the military strategists. However, technology does drive some of that military strategy, and we certainly need to support that military strategy. And so the way that I think through it is that we need to deliver that digital foundation so that whatever problem comes up, we can solve it very quickly. Um, that we have the software, we have the compute, we have the analytics, we have the connectivity, we have all of those things that are necessary uh, to deliver a truly joint uh, warfighting environment. Um, and, and that includes, um, you know, connectivity for future things like, like CCAs. Um, you know, our secretary has said, hey, I want 2,000 collaborative combat aircraft, um, and hey, maybe more. That's a bold, bold statement. Um, but autonomous aircraft, they need data. They need analytics. Um, a lot of that ties into also the acquisition side of things. I think that we have a lot of really brilliant people on the acquisition side um, who understand technology very, very well. Um, we still... Um, we still struggle to purchase as a service, even though we, you know, we, we try really, really, really hard. Um, but I think that, I think that we have people that are, that have their hearts in the right place. I think they're, they're trying to be more collaborative than ever with industry, um, as we do it. Um, we're still going to fall on our faces a few times as we, as we try to get things right. But I think that the best thing that they can do is continue to communicate with industry um, and bring those ideas back and try to, try to form deals, um, that, um, that allow us to learn. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's the best that I can do. I, I think there have been books written about like what's wrong with acquisition. Um, but I think that we do have a lot of people trying to, trying to do the right thing, um, and bringing a lot of technical talent to the fight. I think those are kind of the good, good sides of it. Question. One more question coming in from Two Gun. Two G, which is not five G. And thank you for uh, hosting this great event tonight. Thank you for your uh, great words. I really appreciated how you answered some of the uh, mentorship questions along the lines of, you know, hey, what does it mean to be successful as a woman in this situation or that. Your answers actually, I would argue, apply to everybody in this room. It's like add value. It's like bow up, do that Superman pose, um, pursue the open doors and be ready when you go through the door. I would argue those answers apply to everybody. So good on you for uh, including everyone in that dialogue. But my, uh, my question was along the lines of last month, you mentioned something about... Um, moving Platform One, which was one of my little babies, under JWCC. Wait a minute. Oh, John Maluda just texted. He's, <laughs> he's trumping my question now. Hold on here. <laughs> Young Lauren, thanks for leveraging your youth and energy to especially connect with our junior airmen. Also, kudos for helping to oversee the development of our civilian workforce. 
Wow, he must be listening to this already. I don't know how that's is possible. This, is this what? live? Yeah. Okay. It must be live. What challenges do you see ahead for our uniformed cyber workforce as the cyber booger has gotten flicked from space to Intel functional oversight? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I'm going to send air hugs to Gerald Maluda. Um, I will send them out. Okay. Um, so first, absolutely, all of the advice that I would give to young women, I would give to everyone. Yeah. Um, we had an incredible women's symposium a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was scheduled such that um, I was going to be on a road trip with my family or I was going to have to not speak. <laughs> and, um, well, no, it was totally, totally I don't know. I, I'll, t I'll, take, I'll take the hit. Um, and so I'm on a road trip. I'm answering questions about similar things. My husband's driving the car. I've got on a, on a background, so you can't really see what's happening, but I let the audience kind of know, like, you know, Hey, here's what's going on. So I actually asked my husband who's driving the car, like on the freeway. I'm like, all right, you know, Erish, um, you know, young women can, can, can feel like they don't belong at the table sometimes. What do you, what do you want to, what do you want to say? You know, do guys feel this way sometimes too? And he kind of joked later that he was like, well, let me mansplain how women should feel. And I, you know, and I was like, that is so great. I wish you had said that, like, you know, in, in the real event. Um, but his message was pretty much like, you know what? A lot of guys, they don't know that they belong at the table either. You know, maybe it's their first time or, you know, maybe like that, that, you know, it's, it's a new field, it's a new room or for whatever reason, you know, it's like, you, you're just not feeling confident in that room that day. Like it applies to everyone. And so I think as much as you can kind of be like, Hey, I'm not the only one in the room that is worried about being this table and just, you know, just toss it off. I, I think the, yeah, flick that booger. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that that, that really is important. Um, and, uh, I guess, I guess all I would say to our, our uniformed and civilian cyber workforce is we have some incredible things, you know, I think for you in the future. Um, and I, I often get asked, um, actually from our enlisted workforce right now, I'll get questions like, oh man, the air force wants me to learn to code. I'm very nervous about this. Um, what should I say to my supervisor? And I'll usually say something flippant, like, tell them thank you because your future marketability just went up by 10 X and, you know, but I'll, I'll start with like, yes, it's terrifying, you know, that, you know, you, you, but the one thing that you need to know is that you have to be agile and you have it in the department of the air force. We have digital you, you can go learn how to code in Python. You can go learn C plus plus you can go, you, you can actually learn about commercial real estate and yoga. It turns out as well. Um, but the world is there like at your fingertips to learn whatever you want. And so there is an amount of, I need to decide who I want to be and I need to grab it because nobody's going to hand it. Nobody's going to hand it to you. You have to learn the skills that you want to learn and you have to build yourself up with other people that are excited about what you are excited about. And I would say that to anyone, whether they're wearing a uniform or civilian, they're in the commercial world. I think that applies to all. Um, but, but hugs to general Maluda. And did you want to ask your question? And then we'll go back to wine and cheese. Although most of us, I think, didn't stop, which is good. Um, I just wanted to ask you, well, first, thank you for everything that you did in your position. I really appreciate it. I'm active duty Air Force, so I definitely appreciate everything that you've done. Um, but not just 
Thank you. Uh, not just as a mom, but just as a parent, how do you balance the position that you had and being a parent? Because that's something that I'm struggling with as an upcoming senior leader. Yeah. So I, I get, I get this question a good bit actually. And, um, I'll, I'll hit it a couple of different ways. One is you do not have to be superwoman. You do not have to be perfect in every part of your life. Balance is something that happens over a career. Um, it is not something that happens every day. Um, there are days that I don't see my kids. There are days that I see my kids for breakfast and dinner and stories. There are days that I get to play in the park. Um, I'm going to spend the entire summer in Europe, uh, drinking in my little baby girls. Um, and so that is, that is one thing that I'm doing to make sure that I have balance, but I have had, I've had times when I have worked really, really hard and work has been first. Um, I will tell you that first position in the air force, um, after being tackled and told that I needed to serve my country and saying no a bunch of times, um, when I finally got to, maybe I'll think about doing this whole air force thing. I remember chatting with Bill Marion, um, who was the deputy CIO at the time. And I just said, look, if I'm going to do this, I want you guys to understand that, um, I've been an entrepreneur the last number of years. Part of why I became an entrepreneur is because I was working way too hard. I missed the first two years of my oldest daughter's life. And I wanted to work the way that I wanted to work and I need to be flexible. And so if I'm going to do this job, I need you to have faith in me to be pretty flexible, to run the way that I need to run. And I'm going to give my all, but it's going to look differently than the way a lot of people work. And he said, I'm in. So I had, I guess I had the chutzpah to say, I'm not going to do this unless this is how it is. But I also had a male, uh, supervisor who was recruiting me. who was also like, hmm, actually, I kind of get it. That's cool. Let's do this. And actually, as I'm talking to more and more men, um, I'm hearing, Hey, I appreciate that we're talking about family balance because it's not just women that care about this. Like I want to see my kid too. Um, and, and I think it's actually pretty great over the last few years. I've seen more men feeling very comfortable saying, I want to see my family. And I don't think even, even six years ago when I joined the air force, um, that it was as okay for guys to say, Hey, I'm taking a stance. My family is first. And so I think that's, I think that's very powerful. So I guess the bottom line is it happens over time and it happens through prioritization. Um, and, um, I, I took a class, uh, at, at Wharton called organizational leadership. There's a book called organizational leadership that is almost nothing about organizational leadership. It is about, um, having conversations with people in your life about what they truly need from you. Um, like what is, what is the thing that you truly expect of me and how often the thing that you think that people in your life expect of you, um, it might be something completely different. And so the only way to really know is to ask people. And so when I asked my kids, what do you really need from me? They said, you know what, mommy? Cause we, cause we talked about this job and that it was going to be intense and it was not going to be like my last job where I was more of an entrepreneur. It's going to be very structured and I was going to be away a lot. Um, and they said, mommy, we, we like having breakfast with you when we can. We really want to see you for dinner, but what we really want is a bedtime story. And so they told me exactly what are the priorities, bedtime story, dinner, breakfast. And so most days 
dinner and a bedtime story. I was there. Some days, breakfast. And so some days I was traveling. I mean, in some weeks I was traveling. But I was able to hit those things. If you're able to have those conversations with different people that are important in your lives, you can find how those circles overlap. And you do have enough time in the day if you are able to just meet those things. And I actually remember, I guess, a personal story. My husband and I, right before we got married, um, just about everybody that we knew was like, oh, my Lord, don't get married. It's terrible. <laughs> you're both going to change. You know, it's like you're going to wake up in a few years and be like, who is this person? And I remember we sat at a bar one night. We poured a few glasses. It was very good wine. Um, and we were like, how can we make sure that after we get married, we don't become like kind of weird, different people. Like what are the things that, that we can kind of promise to each other that will not change as we kind of continue on in this world. And I won't tell you what we discussed, but it's a really important conversation to have with a spouse, with kids, um, sometimes with coworkers. And I think actually there are more coworkers that probably I would have had that conversation with over the past few years. And so that's one thing that I'll leave you with is if you can meet just that top one or two expectations with the most important people with you, you have time to do what you need to do and you don't, and the rest, give yourself grace. Um, don't give yourself grace for your whole career because the only, I, I think Rob Slaughter posted this recently on LinkedIn and I was just like, Oh my gosh, nobody's going to remember how hard you worked except for your kids. Um, but for a period of time, your kids are going to be proud of you, especially if you gave them buy-in to what you were doing. My, my kids are so proud of me. They're so excited. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I asked them like a year ago, I was like, Hey, you know, should I, should I leave the air force? Is, is there too much going on at that time? They said, mommy, I know you love the air force. If you leave the air force, don't do it for us. Now my seven-year-old is now like, mommy, when, it, when are you going to leave the air force so that you can come <laughs> hang out with me? And so like, she, she actually cast a little shade that I was coming to an event tonight. She's like, mommy, make sure you come home and play after, you know, after your event. Um, but, but you can do it, give yourself some grace, just hit those most important things. And what I will tell you is actually, um, I think I remember Bill Gates talking about the smart, lazy person that he would hire the smart, lazy person any day because the smart, lazy person figures out what are those most important things that I need to get done. that are going to drive the most impact and everything else. They're like, eh, I don't really want to do that. There is something to that. And if you can find those top things that are most important to your boss, those top things that are most important to your colleagues and ignore the other things or just deprioritize them, you're going to have more energy. You're going to drive more impact. Um, I think it's the times in your career that you get a little bit too tunnel vision on working so hard for things that don't matter as much. Those are the times in your career that you're going to struggle. Um, and those are probably the times in your family life that you're going to struggle. All right. I think we're ready for more wine and cheese, unless you have closing comments. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're done. Yeah. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform 
And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.